America is a 200 and some year old democracy, but it's actually as a multiracial democracy, even close to functioning multiracial democracy, it's still like 50 years old. <laughs> like it's very young. We have actually not tried this out very much, figuring out how to live together, just make decisions together, govern a country that's growing together. It really is still an open question. Like, do we want it? Will we be willing to do it? Can we rise to the challenge? And so I really think a lot about our work in that context. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. In this episode, I spoke with Andre Banks, the founder and CEO of AB Partners. Andre is a longtime progressive political entrepreneur with key roles in the early days of Color of Change and Purpose. He was also a founder of All Out and Win Black. AB Partners is a communications firm led and run by people of color that helps its clients create new narratives about people, power, and social change to transform our politics and the economy. I asked Andre about his road to founding AB and what he's created with this new firm. It was fun to talk to him, and I hope you will listen. So after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Andre Banks of AB Partners. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Andre, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure. My name is Andre Banks, and I am the founder and CEO of AB Partners. And uh, before starting AB about two and a half years ago, I have uh, spent most of my career working in movement building and specifically really looking at the ways that we can change the way that stories are told to bring people more into politics and also into advocacy and activism on the issues that they care about the most. You actually have quite a substantial career at a whole bunch of organizations in the progressive ecosystem, right? That is true. That is true. <laughs> I've, I've racked up a few years now. So yeah, I've, I've, I've been around. <laughs> yeah. Uh, where'd you grow up? I grew up in Cincinnati, Ohio. I was born in Cleveland, Ohio, and I went to college in Columbus, Ohio at the Ohio State University. So very much claim uh, the great state of Ohio. Uh, did that shape you in any particular way? Oh, definitely. I mean, I've been in New York for a long time now, um, 16 years, but I still feel feel very much like a Midwestern boy. And I think my sort of approach to politics sort of reflects more kind of the middle country sensibility as opposed to being kind of uh, the East Coaster that I've sort of grown into. How is that different? When you grow up in a flyover state and you understand what it means to be 
In the heartland, one of the things about Ohio, why it's a bellwether in politics is because it actually has all of the things that that exist across the country in one place. We have big cities. We have a lot of rural areas. It's like actually pretty diverse. There's like great wealth concentrations and there's a lot of poverty. So it really actually helps you understand the real America. Whereas I feel like when you're living in New York or I've lived in the Bay Area, it just really is a different kind of of bubble um, than I think what you you would experience in some place like Cincinnati. Political science was your major at the Ohio State University, right? That is right. Yeah, I I majored in political science. Why did you pick that? Why why was politics a direction for you? The most important part of my college experience was sort of, you know, starting to really explore my own identity. So I kind of found my way into politics through, you know, finding my way as a young black gay man trying to figure out what that meant in in the context of Ohio and the United States and the world at, at that moment. And so um, I think that was one of the ways that I could kind of do that exploration was really kind of reading, learning, getting a sense of like the historical uh, trajectory of this country that helped me understand myself better, the communities that I was a part of better. And then that sort of, to me, became a natural avenue into politics. I'll also say that I kind of took on that major at the same time. I was getting into activism on campus. And so I think that sense of like understanding and learning about power kind of in the street as a part of campaigns, as well as kind of connecting that to my studies was really what uh, kind of got me excited about it. What were the issues that came up when you were on campus that you participated in? Well, the biggest, uh, the biggest and sort of like most impactful one for me was there was a is a union on Ohio State's campus that represents all of the food service, custodial, landscape workers, and Ohio State is you know one of the biggest employers in the state of Ohio. I think the second biggest at the time after the government. This is thousands of people kind of in this union, and it turned out that they went on strike when I was a senior in college um, because they hadn't had raise in like a decade or more. Most people in the union working two or three jobs. It was a union that was 80 percent black women and the group of undergrads sort of got together to say, you know, the university is trying to ignore this kind of group of workers who are sort of standing up for for their rights. But it's harder for them to ignore us as undergrads who are paying to be here. And so we were disruptive on campus kind of in solidarity with and to help uh, that that union local win that campaign, which ultimately they did. I faced the same thing as a as a first year uh, in college, also a similar strike. And, it, you know, they had picket lines and those sort of things are pretty formative when you're a young person. Completely, completely. And I think it just opens up a whole world for you about like, you know, understanding how things work. And I think for me, it was the first time to see people in decision making positions really like you know, seeing how power works, seeing like what it takes to really move people, even to do something that seems so obviously like just and right and fair, just like the amount of work it can really take. So that I think always had a a huge impact on me. So how did you enter the workforce coming out of college? 
So actually, this, these two stories are very closely tied. So um, when I was on campus doing that work, that campaign started started to get some profile because we were being successful and, and people sort of started to know about it throughout the labor movement in Ohio. And then it kind of connected to some national groups. And one day I got a phone call from a guy named Tristan Faulkner, who was the founder of a project called the Student Labor Action Project at Jobs with Justice. And I remember this is like back in the days when there were still like, I had like a landline phone on my wall. And I remember being in my kitchen, he called me and was like, I'm Tristan, I'm from Jobs with Justice, and I want to come help you work on this campaign. And I was like, what are you talking about? Like, how are there people whose jobs it is to like be organizers and help people learn how to to win campaigns? Um, And long story short, through through his kind of advocacy and sort of mentorship, I actually ended up connecting with the job right out of college to go work at the AFL-CIO helping to run their national student program. So actually helping other students have that same experience that I've had um, and really connect to the national student organizations as well as to local unions in their area. What did you learn from that? Oh, lots of things. I think it was a really interesting it's like working in the labor movement, I feel like is like so powerful to sort of start my career that would ultimately be involved, you know, campaigning and organizing and working in politics and elections but to actually start it in kind of like a network of member based organizations and and doing that as like a really young person in a movement that like most people think about as being led by older people, I think really was like a massive education to me just in terms of like how politics actually works and moves and kind of the network of organizations, both inside and outside of that world. So it was really like very, very formative. I think, you know, it also taught me that that like the part of sort of campaigning and organizing that I really cared the most about was um, how do we move people through stories? And so I think I, that was really where I was like, oh, I love organizing, but what I love most about it is like the power of like people's stories and how we kind of get those out there and, and, and connect. Seems like you had a series of jobs that followed that, that take you to like color of change. Could you kind of trace your career from AFL forward to, to there? Starting at the AFL, I was always like very, you know, I entered through that, even coming from activism on campus, always thinking about economic justice and labor rights, always through the like perspective of identity, through the perspective of race, perspective of gender. And so when I got to the AFL and was working with students, you know, that was one of the big things I think that young people were pushing as they worked with the labor movement, that we didn't want to have a movement for economic justice that was not also for racial justice. And that was a real, you know, push 20 years ago when I was sort of doing that at age 21. That was always kind of a track. And I tracked that work from there on through to doing some work in global uh, policy. So it focused on um, U.S. Africa policy in particular. And then that led me um, actually to New York. And I ended up working with um, an organization that's now called Race Forward and their magazine Colorline. So um, I sort of got that job um, and really was focused on helping them tell a story about racial equity through a series of research work that they were doing and then helping uh, their magazine color lines uh, actually make the move to moving online. So it had been a print magazine for about 10 years. Um, and I sort of became the first editor of the digital version of that in, in, in its earliest stage. And so through that, I sort of started to get much more connected to um, movements for racial justice, to some of the players in that world, and then ultimately um, got recruited by James Rucker, who was the founder of Color of Change, to um, help him 
take that organization to the next level uh, at the time when it was sort of, you know, a group of five or six people still sitting around his dining room table. I talked to James about that on the show, and that's really developed into such a key organization. What was that experience like for you? I mean, completely mind-blowing, um, very challenging, but completely mind-blowing. Um, if you talk to James, uh, you know that he is like completely brilliant. And among many things, what I learned from him is, you know, what it means to be an entrepreneur. So I'd never worked with anybody who had started something up from scratch. Um, and James at that point was like a repeat entrepreneur. Color change was, you know, maybe the third or fourth thing that he kind of, you know, helped bring into the world. And I just thought that that was like, just a complete eye-opening experience that for so long I was sort of thinking, how do you push the envelope within kind of the kinds of organizations that we're working on? How do you find new ways to do storytelling, new tactics? How do we win more? And to be in a place that was actually just like, let's create a whole new model for how we think about doing organizing and racial justice work and storytelling and being in kind of that environment really had a huge impact on me and sort of everything I did post color change. Although it still had the lane of racial justice, it also had the lane of like starting new things, trying to create like innovative spaces for people to come into and like do the work in a different way. And it was just cool. I mean, you know, at the time it was like just like few people a few hundred thousand people had joined Color of Change as members around the country. And I sort of was there right as Barack Obama sort of became famous and came into the spotlight and through the 2008 election, which was just like, you know, a great time to be a young person in politics and certainly um, working in an organization like Color of Change. What do you think you learned about entrepreneurship, political entrepreneurship in that experience? Uh, I think I learned two things. One, Nobody taught me that like this is a job, it's a career, it's a field, it's an expertise and and do and grow better at and and it is a really needed and important part of like the ecosystem of like how social change happens. People have to start new things. People have to ask new questions and find new ways in. And so just that idea that this is like a profession that's serious and like I could treat it as such was was a big lesson you've got to start small and you've got to like stay focused and just like keep going and growing. And I think what I also learned in that was like the different kinds of leadership that you need to go from something that doesn't exist at all in the world to something that's like color changes. Now, now I sit on the, I'm the chair of the, of the board with offices all across the country um, with a national profile. And it really took a lot of different kinds of leadership from James at the very early stage to Rashad, who for the last 10 years, uh, Rashad Robinson, who's now the executive director, for the last 10 years has really just grown it into like a powerhouse. And they have such incredibly complementary, but also different skill sets. And it really takes that kind of network instead of leaders doing it together across time to really go from something that's a great idea to something that's like a powerhouse that's really changing, you know, people's minds, changing how decisions are made. Wasn't Van Jones uh, involved in the beginning of Color of Change too? Did you interact with him? Yeah, Van Van was um, one of the co-founders with James, and he was involved in the very early stage more actively. And I think by the time I got there, which was sort of a little ways into the beginning of it, um, he sort of was playing a, a less active role because he was working in some other organizations, but always kind of a an advocate and and partner. What caused you to move on, and what did you do next? 
one big thing actually that motivated me to move on. And in some ways, I never moved on from Color of Change. I'm still like deeply involved and work closely with James and Rashad all the time and, and the rest of the team. Um, but I think one thing that led me to move on from the job was that I'd moved to the Bay Area to actually do that. Uh, and I was there for a while. And I was just like, this is not the place for me. This was actually just like location wise. I really wanted to come back to New York. So uh, I came back to New York, made that transition out of the organization and, you know, sort of took a little downtime and in in that space sort of ended up finding my way to my next startup, which was uh, Purpose. Purpose, another pretty important entity in the ecosystem. What is Purpose? Uh, Purpose is a really interesting and I think pretty cool creative agency and consulting firm that really um, focuses on, you know, how we can leverage kind of like networks of participation and mass participation to change politics and and change how decisions are made. So um, it's founded by a guy named Jeremy Hymans. And when Jeremy was starting it back in 2009, I sort of talked to him about one of the first roles and ended up becoming employee number one at Purpose, a founding partner there, um, and sort of really kind of started on that journey with him as kind of the two of us in an empty office and, you know, helped to grow it up across the the first years. And it's now kind of 11 years in, I think, a really important uh, global organization uh, working on storytelling and campaigns. Yeah, I talked to Jeremy back in 2018 about it. He's an interesting figure. And that organization's done really well. Also, Josh Hendler has been on the show, who's the CTO there. They do kind of a portfolio of projects, right? You have talked to all of my friends. This is great. Uh, yes, the, they do a portfolio of projects. So it really, you know, when, when Purpose was starting, um, you know, the idea behind it was always like, Jeremy and I had both, you know, me at Color of Change, he at Avaz and Get Up in Australia. We've been a part of starting um, these sort of online like campaigning organizations that were on like uh, multiple issues. But the idea was, could we take the skills that we'd learned? Could we take the things that we knew about starting that up? And could you actually turn it into a practice that could help any number of organizations? So rather than just starting up one new thing, how could we actually consult to multiple organizations and help them leverage um, some of these tools differently? So Purpose has always had kind of a, a broad range of kind of like clients and then also incubated projects. Um, so kind of, you know, projects that Purpose started itself that also were meant to uh, grow into work, including uh, one that I co-founded with Jeremy. Which was? Which was All Out, um, which is the campaign we started around uh, global LGBT equality. So the, the idea behind All Out was to build a global movement of solidarity that made sure that in the 76 countries where it is a crime uh, to be gay, lesbian, bi or transgender, that there was a network of people who were standing up to support people who were pushing against those laws and those cultural norms and usually against really enormous odds. So, I mean, here you've gone in the space that we've talked about, took you a little longer in real life. But you've gone from sort of a, a student activist to, you know, being in on the founding of several important organizations. Tell me about that trajectory with purpose and with yourself. Like, what, what are you learning about the world? What are you learning about uh, building organizations? What are you learning about equity and the challenges in trying to get there through this path? That space of time was really... I mean, just incredible. And I think for me, 
really extremely exciting. And I think, you know, I, I count the founding of AB a few years ago still as a part of that trajectory. Um, but I think what I was learning were a couple of things. I was learning all of the hard, the hard lessons about like how to grow and run a business. So ultimately, you know, we were doing work that like we really cared about in the world. All of the work was impact aligned and like really consistent with my values and like change I want to see in the world. But it was also like growing an organization and figuring out how do you pay people salaries and how do you build systems and like what are the kinds of expertise that you need to like do that in a way that's not just kind of like getting by or getting started, but ultimately can make that transition from, you know, cool startup, great idea to actually like world-class organization that's going to like, like survive and like live on even beyond you. So that, that sort of understanding has really helped me kind of have that, that sense as a leader, just like what it takes to, to build that kind of organization. And I think in terms of the work, I think what became really clear to me, especially at purpose was how wide the gap was between the level the scale, sophistication, and talent around storytelling that we needed in the movement broadly to like move people into better education on the most important issues, just that the gap was so huge. So after I sort of worked with so many organizations as a consultant, I could actually see how much people were struggling to find the teams, the talent, the tools to actually be able to make their story break through. Um, and so that really, really fundamentally changed how I understood my career because I was like, oh, for me, this is it. Like, this is the problem to solve. If we don't crack the code on like how we become much better storytellers and how we like embed a sense of like equity in how we tell stories, everything else that we're doing, all the elections, all the advocacy are actually not going to add up. Um, and so that that really was something that I think in that period stuck with me. Um, and I'll say really specifically for All Out, which, um, you know, we did a lot of work on advocacy. We helped, you know, change laws in Sweden that, you know, made force that had previously forced people to be sterilized in order to change their gender marker on their license. And we helped activists in Uganda fight back against, you know, a kill the gays bill. So there was like a lot of advocacy and policy. But ultimately, the biggest success for me in All Out was like building this global movement of people who spoke different languages. They were in every country of the world, two million of them. And ultimately, they were all in a common story about what it means to be able to like love yourself and love the person who you choose and how it, that's something that's worth fighting for and actually bringing that into a global narrative that could actually have the power to really change things. And so that to me was so moving. And really, when Jeremy and I started it, we were like, our greatest hope is that people think about this like we do and like, will really care about somebody that they don't know, but whose experience they can like connect to. And in the end, being able to see that actually happen in the way that real people showed up for other real people on the other side of the globe, I think made me feel kind of a really strong sense of optimism, even when like a lot of the challenges that we're facing can be so, you know, daunting and the, and the path is long. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's been in many places so much progress and yet we're a long way from ideal in the world on, on many of the matters that you've been working on. What is your theory of storytelling in the world of activism? What works? What doesn't? How do you advise people? I often say that like storytelling, the, the power in storytelling is not a transaction. Um, it's not like 
you give person story, person takes story and does what you say. That's actually not, sometimes that's, that's what happens, but that's not actually the deepest power of it. What I really always aim to do in communications work is to bring people into a story that changes their relationship to the story, but also to themselves. What that means for me is like, you know, it's one thing to cast a ballot and vote. It's another thing to have a sense of your own power and to believe that you should organize yourself and other people to like make change in the world. And that's actually your role. And so our job as storytellers is to activate that in folks, to help people see that they can be a part of that kind of community and that they can be really powerful agents in their own lives, even when there are so many things that tell us that we're not, that we should be quiet, that we should be on the sidelines, that our voice doesn't matter. That to me is like the best of what we can do. And then in terms of like, what do I think really, really works? I think the place that I'm in now is like, we have to do a lot more. We're in a place where we can do a lot more listening and learning about like, not just reaching people on mass, but actually what really moves people, what actually changes people's minds, what actually helps them make that connection. And so for me, a lot of the work now is like trying to crack that code, understand what's making those kind of changes for people, and then applying that to like the hardest, most difficult issues where it's really hard to get people to come together. Thinking about the news today, this country is so divided by story. On the vaccine front, there was an article about how 40% of Republicans are not wanting to get vaccinated. And they had some groups together to try to talk to them and see what would reach them. And, and they're pretty getting pretty solidified in a view. And it seems like in this country, so many issues break down into the camps and you can't talk across that divide. Do you worry at all about that? Or do you just mainly focus on talking to those people receptive to the message rather than the people who have hardened up on the right? I'm terribly worried about that. A part of like self-government and deciding that, you know, you want to be in a democracy involves the ability to like, you know, one, have a shared sense of reality Two, having an ability to like engage in compromise and dialogue and debate. And so that the failure of that or the the sort of recession of that, I think, is something that we should all worry about. I think the other thing that I focus on in this is like in the history of social change in this country in particular, technology and communications technology, the way the story is delivered has always had a huge impact on like what's happening in the country and the direction of the country. So, you know, it's not it's not actually um, an accident that we have the image of the civil rights movement in the South emblazoned in our imaginations and those black and white photos and the hoses and the dogs. That's because organizers were like, TV is a new medium where we can reach millions of people. And if we can get TV cameras to actually show the average American what's actually happening in the South, that's going to be a part of the wave of change that helps us get from where we are to where we need to go. And so that was like a good example of leveraging technology. And I think now we have the opposite of that, which is like some platforms that really do not care about civil discourse who do not care about democracy, not nearly as much as they care about making a dollar. And those people right now are really driving the algorithms that really are forcing even the best stories from staying away from people who need them and actually keeping us and driving us even even deeper into our own camp. So to me, as a communicator, you have to be concerned right now about like 
how like what the story is that you're telling, but then also like how are you delivering it and how are the delivery mechanisms hurting you or helping you um, get it done? That makes sense. Tell me about the founding story for AB Partners. And is AB in that your name? Um, AB famously among our team has like a lot of different meanings. Um, so it is my initials, but the thing that we actually got to, the thing that got us to AB as a name was this idea that really guides how we think about storytelling, which is the sense that, you know, when it comes to like a strategy around a story, there's kind of two things that are always happening. There's an A story, which is, you know, the, what we see every day. These are the headlines that we read. It's the things that are on our feed that help us like get the news about what's happening in the world and make sense of the world in the moment. But then there's also at every moment, a B story, which is like the deeper narratives, those deeper myths, the things that actually lie underneath that day-to-day story and help us interpret it. And really when we're thinking about social change. And when we're thinking about communications, we really have to think about both sides of that story. So we've got to like win in the headlines. We've got to make sure that people have, you know, the right news. And I think to your, your last question, you know, we're kind of helping people have something that's true and accurate, but then underneath that, where like if what's stopping people from believing the truth is like a deeper racism or it's a deeper disconnection or alienation, we've also got to figure out ways to address that and like bridge that gap and make the connection. So that was how um, the AB the AB name name came together, and that's really how the business came together. Also, um, in 2016, um, when I first started thinking about AB, I was actually in a period of taking some time off after having finished the work at Purpose and All Out and just having having a break. And that was around the time that, you know, Trump was elected. And when that happened, I sort of looked around and the person that I pointed the finger at, you know, everybody's like, oh, it's these people's fault. And these people didn't do what they were supposed to do in the election. And this campaign didn't work. And I really looked at myself and said, as a person who's been a communicator in this field for forever, like, we're clearly not doing our job. We have lost the thread. We have lost the conversation here in a big, big, big way. Even as we've won it in some other ways, we've lost it in some very important ways. And that just made me start thinking when I have the space to do it, what would a new practice in kind of communications and storytelling that really centered race, racial justice and equity look like? And how could that be transformative or important in kind of what I believe would be the next chapter in politics? It's so dramatic to be trying to do that just at the time that the president is reshaping the conversation around race himself in such a negative way and has a bigger megaphone than you, let's say, even though you're working for groups that I mean, how do you assess the damage he did? Like to me, it, it's gigantic, but also there was the, the counter reaction, the, the way that so many young people and others responded to him as a negative example. How do you, as a communicator, evaluate what he did and how do you counter it? He definitely changed the discourse. Um, but I think two things happened, you know, when Trump came along. I think one, by coming in so hot and so racially charged from day one, I mean, in his opening, you know, announcement of his of his campaign, he talked about, you know, Mexicans being, you know, criminals and rapists. I mean, we really from out the gate, we were like in deep, deep, deep racism territory. I think what that did was not only did it unlock 
and like validate other people's sort of ability to get into the same story that he was in. In other words, to like bring out some of the worst hate and people's worst instincts. But it also exposed the way that progressives um, actually are really uncomfortable ourselves dealing with our own issues around race and issues around diversity within our organizations, because we were unprepared to actually like fight back toe to toe and have a, a, a different story about what it means to come together and the power of like being a multiracial democracy that we needed to actually really be able to counter that. So that was for sure a big piece of like what what motivated me to to start AB was like, we've got to have our own version of this story. It's not enough to say like Trump's version is wrong. We have to have a proactive version that we convince people of that, like actually having all this diversity, like having different kinds of people here. There's more to be gained than there is to be lost. These are really big and interesting things that that you're trying to tackle. How did you pull together a group? How did you you know, get going? What's the first steps in building AB and how did it go? Yeah, in starting AB, you know, I did the thing that most people do when you're starting something new and not sure how to get going, which is, you know, I talked to friends and I talked to colleagues and I really asked people for a lot of help. And I think I was very lucky in finding very early on um, some great partners, including my colleague, Christina Pena Brower, who has been a partner, a founding partner at ADB and has been kind of with me from day one, and then really starting to bring together a team of people who shared this vision. And I think, you know, when you go into the world and you have kind of a point of view on like what you think needs to change, one of the first things you look for is like, is this just me or do other people also feel not just like that this is interesting, but are they passionate enough to like, actually make this their job and take a risk on it? Are they willing to like leave their big agency and like actually come work with a smaller agency like, like AB? And what I found almost immediately when starting to, to do this work was that people were really ready to show up for it. People were like, yes, this is what we need. I want a communications practice where that's like black led, that's like full of brown people that's led by women that looks the opposite of what almost everything else looks like in the professional communications industry, which is like 80% of leadership positions are white men. We need something different here and something different, a different kind of team and a different kind of practice is actually going to help us get to different kinds of stories and different kinds of outcomes. And so I think, you know, there were just a lot of people who were really passionate about that and who brought their own expertise into it. So Christina, having been a sort of longtime kind of movement builder and consultant herself, um, worked with a friend, um, Akira, who was like a, you know, longtime creative director, brought in folks who worked in research, brought in clients from like many different fields who I'd worked with at different times in my career who were, you know, looking for a change and something different. And, you know, really those pieces came together fairly quickly. Um, and, you know, AB was able to, to grow from, you know, an idea sort of in our head in July of 2018 to by the time we got to early this year, you know, a team of 40 people really kicking on dozens of projects, um, you know, all, all over the country. That is a very quick start to any kind of enterprise. Can you point to any particular engagements that you're really proud of? 
there's a lot. I've, I've loved all the work, you know, when Christine and I started AB, having both been on the team at purpose and knowing how hard it is to like start something like this up. Like I really went in with clear eyes about it. One thing we committed ourselves to was like, we are not doing any work here. That's not consistent with like what we believe. We're not working with any people who we feel like don't believe in us. We're really choosing things that like are what we feel passionate about. So all the work at AB is like my dream work. Like I really love all the projects. But one thing I'm really proud of is, you know, the first project that we sort of incubated in house was a project around the election called Win Black. Um, and the idea behind Win Black was pretty straightforward, um, that in 2016, misinformation played such a huge role in the election overall. But in particular, the number one target of misinformation were black people and closely behind that Latinx people. Um, and the reasons are obvious, um, you know, that a lot of the misinformation campaigns were calculated to, you know, uh, support Trump and to hurt Democrats and the, some of the constituencies that were most likely to, to support Democrats were the targets and black people were targeted to be disempowered and to be uh, sort of pushed away from participation. So we created Win Black in 2020 um, to kind of fill a gap. So we built a network of hundreds of grassroots organizations, ultimately in about 20 states. And then we built a sort of content machine to really uh, get millions of people and black and Latinx people in particular, the information they needed to counter misinformation and also to be inspired and participate in the election in the states where it mattered most. That project to me was awesome because it, it represented for me like an innovation in how we think about political communications, putting sort of like building black and brown political power at the center of, of an electoral campaign strategy. And then also finding this way to build this kind of lean network of lots and lots of activists who then are able to sort of work together to build these powerful stories that actually pushed back against the bots and the trolls and the foreign agents in a way that we were able to actually get our story out there at scale. And that supported, you know, really great organizing that was happening uh, on the ground all over the country. So when, when Black was something that I just, you know, I, it just is something I'm, I'm so proud of. I mean, it sounds like it was really targeted at a very crucial problem. I have chatted with a few people who seem like they're also in that space, uh, like uh, Push Black or I guess Color of Change, others. How do you see that ecosystem of organizations who might be interested in that kind of problem and in communication to that particular audience? How are we doing in that area and how do you assess it? Yeah, I mean, there, there are definitely gaps, but there are many fewer gaps than there were, you know, certainly at the time when we started Color of Change, uh, when James was starting Color of Change, you know, uh, 15 years ago. I feel like that landscape has really been transformed. We're getting to have more scale players who really have kind of the resources and the leadership and the talent and the support to be able to do this work. And by this work, I mean, you know, communicating a constant steady story that brings black people into politics and keeps black people engaged in politics. There's many more of those, those actors than there were before. So I think, you know, pushback, color of change, you know, having grown a lot. I think these are, these are good examples. And to me, when black is, is an example of like, when you, when you don't have to have just one black organization, when you can actually have a diversity of organizations that serve black people in different ways, it actually means that you can do different cool things. So for us, 
When Black was not an organization that was about individuals joining in the way that Color of Change really is a home for people's activism around the issues that they care about most. When Black wasn't that. We were really kind of an intermediary service provider, really focused on like making amazing creative content and getting it to scale very quickly and supporting organizers who needed it. And so that to me is actually the real success is like when we have diversity in the sector, it means that like we each can lean into our lane. We can each do the different things that we need to do. And ultimately, it all comes together to add up uh, to more. And I would say a lot of these groups, although they're different and they're doing different things, you know, we're all deeply connected. We've worked together across our careers. Um, we sort of try to make a point to to support each other and find ways to, to, to do this work in, in collaboration. That's cool. I noticed that your company is in the portfolio of new media ventures. And it's I think it's fairly rare for a consulting company to to have found capital that way, which I assume you did. Can you tell me about their role in your firm and your role with them and how does that help or not? I think we actually have the the illustrious privilege of being, I think, the first agency that New Media Ventures um, has uh, had in its portfolio. And, you know, we knew them for a while just from, you know, working in the space and having lots of common partners. You know, we were growing the business and, you know, we've, we started the business with no capital, no sort of like fancy backers or VCs. It was really just like me, uh, Christina, the others at the early stage kind of just bootstrapping it, making it happen and, and going project by project and, and growing in that way. Um, and we applied to new media ventures. Uh, once and we were rejected. So for anybody who got rejected, try again. They get a lot of applications and they don't take many. They got a lot of applications. They don't take many. And they also had a standing rule, which was like, you know, at the time that they did not accept cert, like they did not accept consultancies or agencies as like the kind of thing that they would support for a variety of reasons, including them not being scalable, et cetera, et cetera. And I applied again <laughs> um, because, you know, I, my mother taught me to be hardheaded, I guess. I don't know. But when I applied again, um, and it was a slightly different context last year, um, obviously COVID was happening and they had actually more applications than ever. We'd been in some conversation with them across the previous year. And the argument that I made was that for Black entrepreneurs and women and all of the people who are traditionally underrepresented, like in terms of like who gets funding from VCs, it's like the numbers are like abysmal. It's like, you know, I think, you know, women founders get like 3% of funding and like black founders get something like, it's crazy. It's like, it basically all goes to like white guys between the ages of like 25 and 32. <laughs> it's nuts. But I, but, I, but the argument that I made to them was services businesses for those of us who can't get that kind of capital these are ways that we can use our talents and our networks to start a business, do great work, make money doing it, build capital into the business. And then that allows us to innovate. And that is actually like a real avenue for venture success and innovation. If you are a founder of color or if you are a founder who's not, you know, from the group of founders who we always get to see and lift up. Um, and I was like, you know, this is a business that's 
achieving scale in a way that looks different than like we have like a SaaS product that everybody's turning into an app. But what we are doing is building a consulting practice that is able to take some of the best lessons and communications and help a lot of different groups like work across them. And then they are scaling their impact up in terms of who they can reach, how they can reach them, how they can move them. Um, and I think, you know, they were really open to that, to that position. They were like, this is a different way to think about this. And we need to be thinking about some different ways in in, in part so that we can support some different kinds of founders. And yeah, and so we kind of got in a conversation with them and we were like super happy to be one of the groups chosen. It was like we were we were shocked and surprised and delighted. Do you seek and find work from sort of white led, white dominant groups? (laughs) Like you have mentioned, there's a lot of them out there. Or or do you find yourself niched into or choosing to be you know, connected to more people of color, women-led groups, things like that. How do you think about who you want as clients from that perspective? Yeah, I mean, I want everybody's clients and there's like so much that AB can offer all these different kinds of organizations. And I would say, you know, it's a real mix for us in terms of like, you know, the types of orgs that we work with. Like, you know, we are working with some of the, you know, biggest names in philanthropy, like, you know, a Ford foundation. Um, but we're also working with like, you know, really cool startup ventures in philanthropy, like, um, uh, the Katali foundation, which we helped, uh, them, uh, with their launch this year. That's like a, a new smaller foundation really committed to changing how philanthropy does its business and really thinks about its work and especially its work in communities of color. So we really do kind of run the gamut. One thing I will say we tend to have a lot of clients who are women and a lot of clients who are women of color. So even within white dominant organizations, we tend to have like these really innovative, cool women who are like, uh-uh, I'm doing this a different way. And like, I'm actually willing to give AB a chance to like make the pitch. I really always appreciate this because it's to me a thing that we always try to make room. We try to see the people who can see us. Um, cause there are a lot of people who won't see us as a firm, who won't think that we're like the kind of thing that they want because they have in mind somebody who looks different or sounds different or operates different. And so I've just always noticed that and, and just really appreciated those kind of like, you know, powerhouse leader women who kind of brought us in and, you know, made us deliver for sure, but also kind of gave us the, the space and the chance to, to do that. What is your main pitch? If, if an organization is competing out, kind of the communications consulting work that you do, what do you tell them? What I usually tell them is anybody who promises you that they like have the answer to like make a miracle, a communications miracle in our current media environment. And they can do that. They can rinse and repeat that and do it for you the same way they've done it for other people. I don't believe they're selling you an honest bill of goods. And like what you will get at AB is a process and a relationship that's designed around what you actually need. It's not about making you pay for the things that you don't need. Uh, and ultimately it's about cracking the code and solving the problem and actually showing that we were able to make your story stronger and deliver it like better and broader than what you were able to do with yourself or with any partner that you, that you would choose. Um, and I think the second thing that we, we really sell in is that this is a team that is diverse at every level from intern to the executive team. We are 80% 
people of color. We're 40% black. We're not fighting to figure out our DEI work. We are the solution. Like we are actually doing it and we've done it from the ground up from day one of the business. And that isn't just like about a moral thing. It's not only about that. It also means that we are bringing a, just a different kind of experience, a different kind of flavor, different kind of perspective to the questions that people have to answer. And if these are the audiences that you're trying to reach, you need a team that has like made it their career to care about those audiences and, and has that reflected in their work. So I think that's something that for a lot of people that we work with, we even end up showing up side by side with other comms firms and other teams doing communications work who are often, you know, great, but who don't bring that kind of perspective. They don't bring the same kind of team that, that AB has. Are there other teams that you compete with that are similarly diverse and have a similar philosophy? I think that we're like a little bit weird in the world. I don't know every firm, obviously, but we have an interesting mix of things. So I think be between the team being really diverse, we also have our practice in communications is also very research driven. We're also looking at how to understand communities of color with a greater level of like sophistication and nuance. So, you know, we did a, a report with uh, a group called Harmony Labs last year called Beyond Demography, which is really about breaking down the different ways that black people actually show up online so that we can better understand how and where to communicate with people who have really different kind of desires hopes, dreams, and things that they're doing when they're out in the world looking for communication. So this mix of like the kind of team that we have, the deep focus and kind of social impact and movement building, plus the sort of like diverse audience focus and diverse team. And I think, you know, a really best in class creative studio that makes really beautiful things. I think it's a, it's a pretty unique, unique offering. I think other people are doing bits and pieces of that and we kind of compete with them or partner with them. But, um, I, I think we're, we're a little bit of an, an odd bird in a good way. I mean, you sound pretty proud of where you've, you've come to, where do you want to go? Yeah. I mean, I, I love this business. Um, I think it's great. It, to me, it's great. Not just because it's fun for me to do it, though it is, even though, you know, obviously it's always has its challenges, but I can see from our clients the ways that it's helped them transform what they're doing, the way it's helped them lead in new ways. Um, and I think for our team, that's, those are the people that I'm the most proud of. They really like make it, make the magic. So, you know, for me, what the next stage looks like is it's just continuing to scale that up and to make it possible for us to do all the things that we're doing. I think all the the elements in the recipe are there. It's just for me about like having more of them and like strengthening how they all come together. So we're cooking, the heat is up and now it's time to like dial it up even more so that we can do more work, work on more projects. And I think, you know, work in more sectors across more issues. You know, we're kicking off a, a project now uh, focused on misinformation and climate and especially how that work affects uh you know, uh, organizations led by communities of color in some critical states around the country. And so those kinds of projects that are bigger, they're sort of like even more complicated than some of the things we've done up to now. I'm just so excited to tackle that and, and you know, try to change people's minds on the big stories that matter. It's a good thing to be doing. I mean, I feel like we are in a battle in this country between kind of a vision of a progressive multiracial democracy and it's oversimplifying, but like an Anglo-Saxon white conservative 
more authoritarian world. How do you fit yourself into that big thing? And what do you think are the prospects for it coming out the way you and I would like it to? We are seeing the world in a a very similar way. Um, It reminds me of um, an idea that I think about a lot, which is this question of like, is is America possible? And the sort of premise of this idea um, and this was uh, brought about by a guy who'd sort of worked in the civil rights movement for a long time and then done a lot of organizing after that was, you know, if you really think about it, America is a 200 and some year old democracy, but it's actually as a multiracial democracy, even close to functioning multiracial democracy, it's still like 50 years old. <laughs> like it's very young. We have actually not tried this out very much, figuring out how to live together, just make decisions together, govern a country that's growing together. It really is still an open question. Like, do we want it? Will we be willing to do it? Can we rise to the challenge? And so I really think a lot about our work in that context, even as I'm thinking about, you know, building power for black communities or, you know, helping make sure that like Latinx people have a voice in politics. I'm always thinking about that not as like, how do we replace one form of like domination over another, but it's actually about how do we help people on all sides see the power and the possibility in in this version of government that we've that that we've chosen and that we're we're a part of. So to me that work is really critical. Will it happen? Won't it happen? I think we're always kind of pushing back and forwards at the same time, but I do believe that we're in a really unique moment in terms of like people's relationship to like feeling like they have not only an, a responsibility, but like a opportunity to make a big change that there's actually something that's at stake right now. Um, and that to me means that people are like turned on and more open and like paying attention, even though it's fraught and stressful and like, sometimes traumatizing people are actually engaged in ways that were not true in like when I was doing this work in the early two thousands or even in like the late two thousands when like, you know, we were making some of the transition in this direction. So that to me gives me kind of like hope that people are, are tuning in. It's just a question of like whether when they tune in, we're giving them something that's actually worth paying attention to and, and, you know, staying, staying turned on for. Oh, yeah, I think we thought the differences were stark in 2000, and they're just ever so much more now. Andre, is there a question that I didn't ask you that you'd like to answer? You asked me some pretty good ones. No, I don't think so. I think that, like, I think we covered a lot. Well, it's it's been an honor to talk to you today. Uh, anything else you want to say? This has been really, really fun and I appreciate it. And also thank you for talking with some of the people that I, you know, like and respect the most and who really sort of guided me on this journey. So thanks for doing what you do. That was Andre Banks. Andre is at abpartners.co. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.